It's no new thing for me on this show to talk about my love of movies and my love of comic books, my love of illustration, my love of sound. Uh, at the end of the day, all these elements are coming together to try to convey to an audience something that I felt one point in my life, something that I've experienced. And whenever I experience something intense, I'm always trying to clock in at that moment what I'm feeling. Is my heart racing? What am I smelling? What am I seeing? Can I see it clearly? What is the environment like? Does it support my emotion? Does it support what I'm feeling at that moment? Or does it contradict it? And then how do I feel about that? It's fascinating that my job and our job as storytellers is to try to take this thing that we experience, the series of chemicals that pump themselves through our brain, that process smell, process sight, process sound, take that feeling and try to recreate it falsely with a bunch of tricks and techniques. And that's when I, you hear me talk about the visual language of cinema, the language of film, uh, that's what that is. That's understanding all of these little tricks and techniques and how each one of these things in its own moment make you feel, make you, what does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? And I think having an understanding of that, an understanding of like what a certain lens evokes emotionally, having an understanding of what a specific sound cue does for you emotionally or a specific edit and how long you let the audience see something and how well that object is lit. At the end of the day, we like to pretend like we have full control over all of it. We like to pretend that we're going to create these worlds from scratch. We're going to create all these creatures from scratch and it's in that hard design. It's in that hard understanding of the technology. It's in that technique building that creates these experiences, creates these memories when more often than not, it isn't that. We're using all these tricks and techniques to get you to a spot. But it's all about the audience filling in those blanks. It's all about the audience seeing things and associating their experiences with those things that helps them feel it even more. Now, today's episode is a great one. I'm very excited about today's guest because I've known him for years. Him and I have been passively chatting on the internet, oh my God, for 10 years or something. It's been a long time. I have always been inspired by his work. I think I saw his work initially when I was working as a music video director and I was doing a lot of heavy metal work and hard, hardcore music videos. Um, and his work has been all over a lot of the bands that I love. Like he has done album art for Mastodon. He's done tour posters for Metallica. Uh, he's done album art for Kill Switch Engage. Um, but his list goes on and on as far as where his art has been shown to the public. Like if you go and you look, he's done uh, posters for Nine Inch Nails. He's done posters for Foo Fighters, posters for Black Sabbath. Uh, and he's also done illustrative work for movie work, for movie posters. 
rather. So he's done a poster for The Labyrinth, Game of Thrones, It Follows. Um, and anytime I see his stuff, I am just completely enamored with two things. One, his attention to detail. This guy's, the detail in this guy's work, I it, it, it scares me. And I've talked about on the show how when I started, I thought I was going to be an illustrator. I thought I was going to be a comic book illustrator. One of the things that deterred me from doing that was that I didn't have the patience for cross-hatching. I didn't have the patience for detail. I always liked the broad strokes of an image. I always liked the emotion of an image. When it came time to sit down and one by one sketch out all of the lines that create the feathers on the front of an eagle, I'm out. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. And I couldn't, I, I didn't have that focus. And when I look at our guest's work today, he has such beautiful attention to detail. He has such a, a wonderful understanding of nature. He has such a wonderful understanding of how life withers away with the way he draws and illustrates his stuff. Now, the other thing that I find incredibly fascinating about his work is that he has this uncanny ability to, in a still image, in an illustration on a flat piece of paper, convey, trick your brain into thinking that the fur is blowing in the wind, into understanding how cold this moment is, into feeling something. And he has a really great understanding of the tools at his disposal, which I fucking love about this work. So he knows that a specific brush stroke, he knows that a specific cross hatching, he knows that the combination of two colors, he understands how to put you in the right place to fill in the blanks. And if we think about all of the movies that influence us, if we think about all of the artwork that influences us, I would say almost definitely, right? And I'm sure you can argue against it, but almost definitely I would say that the best of the best that float to the top every time are the ones that we do as the audience most of the work, most of the legwork. And for me, when I when I came to understand that's how I reacted the strongest to my films, I started to let go of this sense of this need of being a god, right? The person that designs everything on screen, the person that shows you everything that you want, that, that you see, and that forces you to have an emotional connection to these things. Because we've seen it not work. Sometimes it does work, you know? You look at Avatar, and Avatar is the, is the brainchild of James Cameron. And James Cameron has spent countless, thousands and thousands of hours meticulously designing each and every one of those leaves in Avatar, meticulously designing how the creatures move and how the world feels, meticulously doing all that stuff. Are they great films? Yeah, I love the Avatar movie. I'm really excited about the next ones. But I would also say 
that if I had my choice about putting in Avatar or putting in Jaws, I'd pick Jaws again. Because when you watch Avatar, you're getting everything that he wants you to get, right? It's a very simple book where it's like, here's the story, here are all the characters, here's how the world looks, here's how the world reacts. There's, there's a safety in that. But what I like about Jaws, or more importantly, Alien, is that it doesn't answer all those questions. So that every time you sit down to watch that movie, wherever I am in my life, my brain starts to fill in the darkness with what's going on with me. Which is fascinating. And it takes years and years prior to a release of a movie like The Thing or prior to the release of, you know, The Fly for people to understand that that's what makes those movies so powerful. It isn't having all the answers. It's understanding that if I use the tools a very specific way, I'm going to put you, the viewer, in the mode to do the work. That's what we talk about on today's show. I'm very excited to have him on. Mr. Richie Beckett is on, and we're gonna talk about his art to a certain extent, but this is what's great about our show, is that this isn't about his art. So I'm not gonna specifically pull pieces that you've seen and then be like, how did you, where did this idea come from? And how did you paint this thing? No, no, no. We get nerdy pretty quickly on, early on about Ridley Scott. You'll see. And we get really excited about movies. We get really excited about conveying what we feel to an audience without telling them how to do it. That's the trick. That's the magic trick of what we do. So strap yourselves in. It's going to be a great episode for that. Thank you, everybody, as always, for following me on Instagram. Uh, those of you who are just joining us because you guys are Beckett fans, um, do yourself a favor. Head over to Instagram at Mike Petchy. Head over to the podcast Instagram. That's a love of the process pod and love of the process P-O-D on Instagram. Um, there you'll see images that I post every week to support the episodes. I also post a bunch of images on what I'm working on, which we talk a little bit about more on this episode. You guys will get more information on what's coming up with me uh, in this conversation. And then those of you who are just joining us, um, do yourself a favor, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There I've curated all of the episodes of the show to different subject material. So it makes it easier to go back and listen to the catalog because sometimes it can be daunting to see uh, almost a 200 episode list on Apple Podcast or whatever. If you head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com uh, and click on today's episode and I'll put up there as many of um, Beckett's images as I can get my hands on. So that way you guys can see the detail. You guys can see the stuff that I've fallen in love with with this artist. Um, and I think this conversation is going to be great because you're going to hear us finally after, like I said, passively communicating on the internet for like 10 years, finally coming together. And you're going to hear a lot of common loves that two artists have. We didn't prep any of this stuff. So this is all, <laughs> this is me learning about him and him learning about me for the first time on the show. 
Uh, and after, when we're done with the show, I'll let you know how it turns out. So, uh, yeah, let me not delay it any further. You know the deal. You've got those noise-canceling headphones on. Put the noise-canceling on high. Um, and, you know, because I don't do music during the interview, you may want to put on some music, too. So if you have the opportunity to listen to the show without headphones on, throw on an album real low in the background at the same time, right? Find something atmospheric. Maybe find some old Tangerine Dream vinyl. I've been loving finding their old stuff lately. They get really weird and strange. I just got their stuff and I got the classic Carpenter Brood album. That's another good one. But put something on in the background while you're listening to the show. We won't play music while we're doing the interview. Um, but I just want you to imagine that you're hanging out with me and Richie. And uh, hopefully when we get out of this COVID thing and he's here in the States, we'll be doing this over beers again. Because I think I should have him back on the show. Uh, anyway, you know the deal. Set yourself in. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Richie, Richie, thanks for being on the show, my man. Absolute, absolute pleasure. Yeah, very, very happy to be here and to connect with you in uh, some sort of official capacity after we've been um, <laughs> sort of uh, uh, vague internet friends and friends of friends for a few years now. So uh, yeah, it's good to finally connect with you. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I'm excited that you have the time to do it because you're such a busy dude. Um, and, um, I've been a big fan of your work for years. Uh, you know, and I think I got into it initially from all the album cover stuff that you were doing. And then I saw the tour posters and, um, being a bit of a illustrator fanatic myself and wanting to initially be a comic book artist before I became a director and sort of playing in that world for, for years. Um, the thing I really love about your work is the thing that I was never good at, which is like the extreme obsession and attention to detail like your cross hatching like all that stuff is just very awe-inspiring um and so i just respect you brother for what you do Thanks, man. that's in that's really interesting because i feel like i the i'm aware that i draw in a way which is labor intensive and it has a lot of detail in it but that's the thing that i'm always battling to try and move away from like to me the dream would be to be able to draw something very simply and concisely <laughs> and not not have to always feel like i've got to pile in every it's, it's like if you were cooking a casserole and you pile in every single ingredient imagine you could just do it with a couple of perfect ingredients you know something like that i think it is that you can hide behind a lot of that um that detail but i don't know it's, it's the only way i've ever known how to do it but i guess my point is just that you saying that it's, it's always the same that you 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 crave 
the thing that you feel like you can't do or mm-hmm. you don't do or doesn't come naturally. But also it's no surprise for you to say that you've came from a comic book background of, I feel like if you're into, uh, I, I always assume that if you're into filmmaking, you're also into illustration and then you're probably also into music in the same way. And you just happen to have gravitated towards the one thing at any one time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a guy that sort of plays like I do, like a lot of my stuff is very visually intensive for that reason. I think there's, there's people that get into filmmaking for a bunch of different reasons. You might have been an actor and you really want to work with actors. You might have been a screenplay writer and you really want to work with screenplay writers. I've always been a very visually intensive, like Ridley Scott kind of filmmaker. And that mm-hmm. that essentially comes from my days of <laughs> being being a terrible student and... My mother was uh, always concerned that I would never read any books. And so she bought me a bunch of comic books when I was a kid. And I just, yeah, I fell into it. I fell into the world of creating a three-dimensional world within a, uh, like a 2D frame and very sort of. Right. Um, a visual storytelling. I, I, yeah, I've, I've always, I've always identified so strongly with Ridley Scott and I've come, <laughs> I've come from a, a background of, obsessing over film since I was a child and, and, and studying it to a degree as well and um, flirting with it in many ways, but but obviously ending up specializing in illustration, but it's all the same visual language and, and in many ways. And Ridley Scott, I've all, all the things that people criticize him for, the things he's fallen under fire for, you know, neglecting the actors and <laughs> neglecting the dialogue and obsessing over uh, aesthetics and visuals and lighting, Whenever I've I've read books about him and and I'm always like that would be me you know if I I'm not saying I would be Ridley Scott but I that I I know I would be that same way I'd just be like can we just do that can we just get that take again so he can just check out if that the smoke in the background just filtering and is not quite catching the light in the way I want it and they'd be like, but I just fucking nailed that take you know but <laughs> I, I um, yeah I empathize with it or. I, I I can really, I've always had a bit of a click with that mentality of thinking, yeah, I'd, I I really would uh, be pretty obsessive over the visual side of things. And Ridley Scott, yeah, I was. In fact, I, I this it, even though it's a massive, it sounds like a hugely pretentious thing to say, but he I've I often refer to him as a big influence on my illustrations. I believe because it. of. Because of mainly because of his approach to backlighting, I'll very often use a brighter paper color than the than the print color, so it looks as if it's backlit, and I use it all the time. And I and that in the idea of being like somehow it sounds pretentious to me to say that that that's an influence on the illustration because of the grand scope of what he's achieved, but um, but it's an honest one. Is one I remember reading about that, identifying in his movies and thinking, how can I apply that to illustration? Well, put those lighter colors behind the figure. You don't have to light up the figure, you know. Mm-hmm. It works in the same way. Um, I don't think it's pretentious at all, man. And I'll have to tell you some stories offline. And the little that I mm-hmm. will say here on the podcast is that I've been in his office and I've been... Uh, alone in his office with walls covered <laughs> with like a storyboard art and like really cool fucking sculptures. Oh. Uh, and his offices are just loaded with 
uh, fashion uh, photography books. They're loaded with mm. illustrating books. So it all sort of circulates. And he himself is very much an illustrator and he does all of his own storyboards and he's a madman when it comes to just before, while he drives to set, he's like storyboarding from his like photographic memory of what the location was like. And yeah. He's, he's a, he's a fucking machine. And I like, it you, makes sense. I mean, it makes that, that, yeah, that must've been an, a, such a cool experience. And it makes sense to think of him having reference to fashion. He, you know, he came from advertising, yeah. which also makes sense why he would be, if you think about what you're trying to achieve in a two minute stinger of an advert, it's like, you don't have time to have some Oscar winning performance <laughs> acting monologue in there. You, you've just got to be like, how can I make use of every visual moment in this to sell the thing and make it look as cool as it possibly can? You know, that's what it is. Like, yep. how can you make this product, whatever the thing is, or create a vibe? You know, like I think some of the some of the adverts he did, one of the famous ones was like the Hovis bread. I'm guessing it was Hovis, like granary yes. bread advert in the UK, which was super old worldy, super English little boy walking up a cobbled road with a bicycle <laughs> and um, to sell bread to people. And and I, I remember seeing that advert running all the time on TV when I was a kid. I can remember the music in the background it sounds super nostalgic and old timey. And um, it, it totally worked because I still think of that, that bread identifying with that whole vibe of that world. It's, it's just a loaf of bread, but it, it totally worked, you know, to set up a, and, and that was a visual story. There's no dialogue in it. It's mm -hmm. just some nostalgic old timey music from, I don't know, the 1920s or something. And like some kid in the flat cap rolling a bicycle up a cobbled, cobbled hill to deliver some bread. So, you know, it was not about really capturing a performance or, or some incredible dialogue or anything like that. I think I love the fact that we're starting the podcast this way because I think this is why I really enjoy your work. And being a guy who is incredibly obsessed with light myself and dealing with light and shadows, um, the stuff that I really appreciate in your work is your ability to uh, paint highlights. Like I love your uh, scratchboard stuff. That stuff is really fucking cool. Um, and then I also like your obsession with like uh, furs and feathers and it, there feels to be what I would do on screen is I would be like uh, bringing in like smoke machines, fans, like trying to add sort of that Kurosawa movement to mm -hmm. everything and then have that movement help, um, you know, accentuate the emotion that the, that the performer is going through. And I feel that way when I look at your stuff, like the atonement poster and all the fur moving in the wind and, and the fire and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I think that's why, what I really want to get nerdy about today is, just our love of uh, light and shadow and then also just atmosphere. And you do yeah. on the page, on a fucking, on, on like a still image, you have more atmosphere <laughs> than a lot of movie shit that I see these days, dude. Thank so. you so much. Thanks for, that. Thanks for acknowledging that as well, because it's something that, um, that I, and actually, this also came from, um, it's also a Ridley Scott thing, actually, from when I was in art school, I was also doing film study at the same time for, for a year. And um, uh, not not solidly, but I did a just a weekly film studies class. And I was reading, they had a lot of film books 
in the art school library. So I read books about um, John Carpenter, really Scott, just like picking out on, you know, all the stuff that was, uh, yeah, my favorite directors at the time. And, and um, I remember reading in the Ridley Scott book about how when he was making Legend, that whole incredible fantasy forest scape that's created in that movie is all set up inside mm-hmm. um, Pine or wherever they were filming. It's in the UK and in a studio. Um, and it, it, that, that, so it has that incredible otherworldly kind of feels like you're watching a stage set show or something. You know, yep. It works for that because it doesn't have to feel real, but, but it, they would build these incredible forest scapes and swamps and they were beautiful. And I know there was a whole... Um, there's a whole story about how I think one of the I think the set burnt down at some point and they had to rebuild it from scratch. Some crazy shit went down. But um, <laughs> one thing that stood out to me and I remember is is how I I did love the atmosphere in that movie and I remember reading about how he ripped apart. He he had people on set who were just tearing up feathers, shredding up feathers from pillowcases and throwing them into fans on the side of the set so that you always had those little ethereal uh just like floaties basically you know in the countryside those little dandelion clock seeds float those little fairy kind of seeds floating through the sky on the in the spring and um i guess it's mostly seed pods floating around but he he created that vibe basically by having shredded up feathers throwing them into the having people whose job it was just to throw them into fans so that at any given point on the set whatever he filmed it would have those tiny little flecks picking up in the light and give it that magical ethereal feel to it and that was one of the things that started me putting that into drawings too because it was like hey well I can do that you know I can I can add these little sunspots and lights into it and then for me once I started going down that road of doing it I think I always would I always wanted to pile movement into things because I grew up also into Warhammer and Games Workshop stuff, you know, just big battle scenes and crazy mm-hmm. dramatic, <laughs> you know, these those sort of uh, um, Space Hulk characters and all this crazy shit that's, you know, very comic booky, I suppose. And I wasn't really into com- I didn't really read comic books, but I had a few books about comic books but didn't really read comic books, And but I was more into, yeah, Warhammer fantasy stuff. And all of those those things were always painted in a very over the top dramatic way all the time, and and so that probably had influence influence on it. But I yeah, I'd always start injecting images with those little things, things floating around in the air, and if there's a piece of fabric present, it's going to be blowing in some in the wind. You know, it's not going to just be hanging or sitting there. It's like how can I use? I have complete control over what I'm drawing here. No one's telling me what to do. I can, it can be anything I want. There's no budget <laughs> behind it. There's no, uh, I don't have to call in for a special effects budget for this. I can just draw whatever. If there's something there that can be moving and adding to the atmosphere, it's going to happen. I, I think what happened for me then is go, once you start treading down that path, then you feel like anything, you don't want to waste any space with that. You do. It's all, it's all there and to kind of the taking and, um, if, if I feel like an area has not been put through that process in some way, or at least it hasn't been addressed, like it might not be, it might be that there's an area that in the image that you want to be perfectly still and simple because it'll balance out nicely against uh, another area or what, it depends on the story you're trying to tell. But, but it's more for me, it's about once I started go treading that road, 
realizing little things like how if so for example I, I, I'll fill I'll fill areas with with petals and details and but I'll always try and have the lines intersecting so the thing won't just fall in an empty space it'll also be intersecting across another line which adds a bit of vibration to the image too because the two things are sort of jostling for space and um just little tricks that that create movement in an image and once you start doing it i find it really hard not to do it you know if i (laughs) I see other artwork that's maybe similar stuff but the things that things can feel look very static to me now i think when they don't have that movement in them so Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is so fucking fascinating because there is no movement, which is so interesting that there are these uh, techniques yeah. to create that vibe. And it really what you're doing is you're stimulating our brains as the viewer to go, well, that's what's happening. Subconsciously, we're looking at that going, oh, yeah, like I can see the fur on that creature sort of blowing in the wind. Yeah. And it's, it's but a- also more than that. The, what I do, the, I think the goal is to to look as if it's a freeze frame in a moment, you know? So, so as a viewer, you're, you're seeing that moment and thinking it maybe you're informing yourself of like, Hey, what, what has maybe just occurred and what's just about to occur on either side of this still frame? Not like if you, so I, I guess you could think of it like if, if, if you took the, if you took the image and then said to someone, okay, unpause it now, would it just be a still flat image of some, something of, bowl of fruit, you know, posing in front of you, doing nothing? Would it be just a still person or would you unpause it and it would spring to life? And I'd like to think it would spring to life in most ways or something would happen or occur, I think. Yeah. It's interesting because then being a guy that comes from the illustration world and then getting into, um, you know, directing, I would always be, (laughs) when I first started, I would would always be pushing towards that still frame because I, I just remember these iconic still frames of either superheroes or, or amazing illustrations where you just have the right posture and you just have like that right moment. And so for years, right. I, I was consistently trying to build that moment on screen yeah. for, for video. And there's a couple of techniques that you could do. You could be like a Zack Snyder and you could do super slow motion and then that super slow motion. But what I found, which I really enjoy, and I, I don't know if the audience notices it, but I notice it more than anybody, is I find that that same power comes in shortcuts. So like if I'm, if I've got a character that's gonna turn around and like pull a gun, instead of doing a, trying to find like that one shot where they're sort of standing there, for me it's in the energy on an insert of them spinning. And in that energy, there's like this accidental thing that either happens with the hair or happens with the background. And it's usually only on screen for like, I'd say like five frames or six frames and it's just woof. And whenever I do it, I, I, I tended to find it a lot when I was doing music videos. I think a lot of the kill switch engage videos, I was finding them in there. We find like these little nuggets and I just found myself in the edit room just replaying like those five frames over and over and over and over again. And then what I wanted to do as I figured out that that was the technique is I would just start to stack the video with as many contrasting moments that would allow those frames to be really fucking interesting. And then the rest. Yeah. I knew exactly what you, mean. Yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And if, and if you took those, if you took one of those takes and let it just be fleshed out and play through, you might not as a viewer and even notice that little swish of the hair or that gesture or movement. But if you as a, as a, an editor at that point can 
edit it down and get just that perfect. And it, it also, especially especially with music video directing, with with something like that, you're looking at. Uh, of course, it's all about rhythm and timing as well. And beats, sure. whether, even if it's not to the song, just beat. I mean, it is in cinema anyway, but just beats. And if you have, if you can capture those, and then like you say in a music video, stack them up. All of those little golden moments of movements and gestures. Yeah, because then you've got the you've got like the anxiety up when you're watching it, where you're like, "Oh, this is really fucking good." You know, it's a really yeah. great example of it. And I know everybody at home is going to know this too. Mad Max Road Warrior, beginning of the movie, after he's chasing those guys on the motorcycle and he hits his brakes, and it's a low angle shot, and that rear tire just goes as he hits those brakes. That's those moments, like that simple. His car is fucking badass. The chasing's badass. The jumping over the car on the motorcycle, cool. None of it compares to that. And even yeah. even in the new one, where they started it, and he still had his car, and they had the really brilliant production design on the tires, where the tires had shredded, so the tires almost had fur on the back tire yeah. that, that it did. And it had the same thing, where he she used that low angle shot, and that furry tire kicked up the dirt. It's like that's the whole reason. And I, I remember seeing that in the trailer going, this movie's going to be fucking awesome just because of that specific shot and his knowledge to capture that, yeah. you know? It's cool shit, man. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, just so much tension, so much tension in that shot and power. And the whole, that's so cool, the thing of the frayed tire, because that's also telling a bit more of a story as well, isn't it? It's just, it's just that thinking of, and I get frustrated when I don't see it enough. And I don't know, just la- la- lazy filmmaking, I guess. When it's yeah, you're not it. really t- not, I, I I think it's, you could look at that tire and think, cool, let's film a shot of the tire. But then there's so many things that they've done to really focus in on it. Like, okay. How can we tell more of a story with it? How can we create audio tension with it? So many layers of things you can really pile into that, into yeah. that one shot. Just give uh just tell a story ultimately and generate a, a vibe. Well, I mean, you know the backstory with that. They they tried to they tried to start that movie three times, and the production design team built those cars three times. And the first two times they had to they had to destroy the vehicles. So they they did three different variations of of all those vehicles and the amount of detail that just came into it after ten years of practice on these cars and all like the, the, like when you look Wait, in the, so on, the road, on, on the new one, on Fury Road. yeah. On the new one. Right. Yeah. yeah. Why they, did they, why did they keep re- rebuilding them? Initially they were supposed to do it. I think it, don't quote me on this, but I think they were supposed to do it right before nine 11 and then nine 11 happened and then all that stuff fell apart. And so then they had to, they had to junk the cars and then they were going to do it again um and obviously mel gibson had his problems so that sort of fell apart and then they were supposed to do it in australia again and uh all of a sudden australia had like the biggest rain season of of its history and so the desert turned into fields of green and so then they had to ship everything down to uh, i think they shot it in like south africa is where they ended up doing it and so I saw an interview with the production designer and he was talking about at least one of the rounds where he's like, you know, the production team called us up and said, the movie's done and we can't just leave these vehicles around. We can't store them. We have nowhere to put them. So they just cut them all up. And so they had built all these amazing vehicles and destroyed them and had to build them again. (laughs) 
movie business can be Crazy so inefficient. Against, against all the odds, really, that you, you wouldn't have thought that uh, that film, I mean, for any reason, you would have thought that they must have thought, hey, we're probably never going to get this film made. Yeah. Just because of the scope of it, time since uh, any any of the previous and the original Mad Max um and the fact that uh, George Miller had been off making Happy Feet and uh, <laughs> taking the same things yeah. like that, yeah, it just yeah. seems so unlikely that he would have come full circle and got back to doing that. And for, to to actually do it and it be fucking awesome is just like seems so unlikely. I would not have bet money on it. I'd like to believe it would it would be awesome, but that that's one of the um, few times. Uh, there's all sorts of experiences you have going to cinema, but. That I remember walking out of seeing Fury Road and f- having that feeling of I wanted to just jump up and punch the air, you know, like yeah. Ever, yeah. actually, which I probably hadn't had since watching Jurassic Park or something in the cinema, you know, like I hadn't, and th- that's coming from a place of not, I'm not big into, I, I wouldn't really go and see, I guess, action movies or superhero movies, things like that. It's not really my cup of tea. So I suppose it definitely tapped into something different for me where I, uh, just a, a genuine primal excitement over a really fucking incredible spectacle on the screen. So yeah, Fury Road is just incredible. I really want to, cause I, since I found out about like George Miller making, um, Babe 2, Pig in the City, mm-hmm. which most unlikely thing from uh, the guy who made Mad Max. And I want to f- do a study at some point or find, write something about study the two movies or maybe, maybe road warrior and, and pig in the city and find comparisons between them. Cause I bet if you started looking, there'd be loads, you know, like, cause I, as far I've never really watched pig in the city properly. I've kind of seen it. It's been on in the background a couple of times, but I think it's about, I feel like the pig, obviously he's come from another place as some sort of savior for these yeah. animals in the city. And it's kind of similar, I guess, to uh character road warrior shows up at some place and well, and, and in Fury Road, you know, but yeah, it's got something in, there's gotta be some similar, if you broke down the story, there's gotta be some sort of comparison. I think between, I think he's road obsessed. Warrior. I think he's obsessed with mythology. I think that's at least with the Mad Max stuff that that's why he's never really been, this is what I've read. That, that he's never really been uh, concerned with the sequels and making sure that the sequels connect because it isn't about like one specific story. It's about the myth behind uh, yeah. this I love character. This. Yeah. So it's kind of like, what if someone told you around the campfire, what they knew about this guy showing up and yep. yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Which is really cool. And, uh, for any criticism over continuity between the films, but it's fucking, it runs true. It's perfect. Yeah. I, I and, once again, this comes back to what we're talking about on the show, which is like illustrations and movie. But that that entire film didn't really have a script. That was all storyboards. And they he sat down. I forget the illustrator he sat down with, but they spent years and just boarded out the entire film. It was like 2,000-something storyboards. It was crazy, man. It, that's, I mean, if, if, if it had been the other way around and it was just like... Um, I mean, I think there's there's a, 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 a brilliant awareness there of him knowing the kind of movie he wants to make because otherwise, if it'd been the other way around where they're like, we need to get really deep into characters' dialogue, which could have been cool, but if they'd done that and then just had those points in, in the script, it'd be like, then there's a huge car chase. You know, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. actual direct, you have 
you know, when you look back on old scripts and just be like, they fight or something. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been the, the wrong approach to that movie. So yeah, it's a, it's a real cool conscious thing that they knew that was really what it was going to be all about. that time it's time to show some love for our sponsors of the show and uh, first up good buddies over at Puget Systems if you are an illustrator and you're looking to buy a new computer your old computer just isn't hacking it maybe you're trying to run your uh, Cintiq into it and you're getting some weird pinwheel of death and you're like man Photoshop for some reason requires so much more RAM and that these days all my clients require me do things at a ridiculous DPI, uh, and I just need my machine to work perfectly for Illustrator and Photoshop. Well, build yourself a PC, because if you build a PC, you can tech spec out that hardware to work specifically for that software. Now, I know you're like, well, I don't know how to build a PC, and where do I go? And where do, what is the best hardware to buy? Is it the newest graphics card on the market? Will that work just as well? Do yourself a favor. I did the hard work for you. Go to PugetSystems.com. They're a small company from the Upper West Coast, family-run company, um, and they build amazingly fast, specifically calibrated PCs for the work you need. Can you imagine having something built specifically for what you need <laughs> and it doesn't cost a fucking fortune? That's what I'm talking about. Head on over to PugetSystems.com and uh, you can choose one of the baseline packages to start. They have a bunch of different models that work for different things. You can choose uh, configuration based upon the software you use, which oftentimes is very helpful. Um, and then these guys like to hear from you. So you can reach out to them. You can tell them specifically what you need, what you want. You get real person customer support, which is huge. Um, and they're doing a lot of consultation programs for people that are outside the US because they don't ship their machines internationally. So you can pay them a small fee and they will help walk you through what it is that you need to do to build the perfect PC for your needs. So Puget Systems, great guys, great company. Uh, always support, they always support the arts. They support me, they support a bunch of other artists. Um, and so if you're someone that wants a true connection to a company that is going to build you a computer, head on over to PugetSystems.com. Also supporting us on the show, good friends over at Quasar Science. Uh, we talk about it on the show. We talk about the power of light, the power of darkness, the power of uh, controlling what the audience sees. And uh, Richie and I both love backlighting. So I know a lot of you guys are like, well, what, what, what light units are you using, right? Well, I have a kit that's loaded with a bunch of different stuff. I still have a bunch of old tungsten units. I've got bearable light bulbs in, in my kit. Um, but I also use, more often than not, I'm using a Quasar Science uh, LED 2. Now, the LED technology is through the roof these days. It's amazing what they can do uh, at such a low power draw, which is really big. 
Um, but now they have really true color stuff, like really well-balanced bi-color LED lights. So when you're actually using them, they're consistent. So when you're ending up in the color grade, you're not like, why is the over-the-shoulder more fucking green than that other one? God damn it. So now you have to try to color correct everything. Get yourself some lights that are well put together. I know you can find them cheap online if you're buying them through China and you're getting really sort of dog shit LEDs. The, the big difference is, is that they're not consistent. Consistency is important. It's key for continuity. So if you're looking to buy some really strong um, and versatile LED units and you want a company that is reputable, you want some lights in your kit that when your gaffer shows up, he goes, oh, this guy knows what he's fucking doing. As, instead of like trying to pull out these like fucking LED uh, strips that you pasted onto a poster board and they're running into some weird little electronic pots. <laughs> Do him a favor. Get yourself some Quasar units. Head on over to QuasarScience.com and they will uh, let you know all the cool new stuff that they're working on. Uh, also supporting the show, if you want to support the show uh, and you have some cash, you get some extra cash, you want to donate to the show, you can do so. Head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There's a donate button there. Um, but there are a bunch of options for you to support the show by dealing with our sponsors that won't cost you anything, right? The best way to do any sort of support for the show, if you guys have no money, is just click on any of the sponsor links in the descriptions below. Or go to any of the sponsors' Instagram and leave a comment under any of their images and say, I heard you on In Love With The Process. That is the best way to support this show without reaching into your own wallet. But another way to do so that will get you stuff, because I know it's all about you, right? At the end of the day, it's all about you guys. <laughs> uh, if you haven't done so already on another podcast, you can sign up for a free trial at Audible. If you go to audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process, the link is below in the description. Uh, sign up for 30 days for free if you haven't done so already yet. You'll get a free audiobook. You'll get access to the audio content for 30 days. Um, and then you will be, your mind will be blown because you're going to be able to read books while you're doing something else, which is why I listen to most of my books. Um, so check them out. And like I said, if you, if, you, if you find that you can't stick around after the trial, don't worry about it because we still get paid. Oh, I shouldn't be saying that, but I do. We still get paid. So go check it out. Sign up for a free trial at Audible. The link is below the episode. Support the show without costing you a fucking dime. All right. Um, that's it. We'll keep it short and sweet on the reads today. Let's get back into it. This I'm, I'm fucking this conversation is so great. Uh, and I'll, I'll wrap it up with you guys at the end. I can't wait to talk. Okay, see you. too for me it, it feels like these guys you myself uh a lot of the people that i respect in this business they just have this obsession over specific details and there's something really interesting in that where i think a lot of storytelling especially when you're doing storytelling for corporations um it becomes very broad 
and it's a, it's incredibly sort of like a broad tone, a tone that tries to appeal to each and every person involved. And in that broadening of a story or an idea, you start to lose sense of the voice. You start to lose sense of like the source of it. And I don't know if you feel the same way, but oftentimes I'll be inspired to do a video or I'll be inspired to do a photo shoot or something just based off of a specific emotion or a specific movement. Like uh, how do you, how do a lot of your ideas start when you're doing like non, when you're not uh, being hired by a band or, or someone to do it? Like if you're doing your personal stuff. I Honestly, I, um, the majority of what I do is, I don't really do work outside of project work, if I'm honest, but because of because um, of the time-consuming nature, I suppose, of not only the style I work in, but also just the way I work. I'm just very, I like to call it ritualistic, but I'm just really slow and I procrastinate <laughs> a lot and I, I put it down to being very ritualistic about my work, but um, <laughs> it's really just, yeah, I, I take my time. So... It, I can only pack in a certain number of jobs. So that really is going to be all of my time. And I don't really, I have people who, people often say, thing, say to me, oh, I'd love to see your sketchbooks. And say, I don't have sketchbooks. I just, if I'm working, it's for a project. And that's fine because I get enough room to play around. So in answer to the question, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I There's got to be some launching point. Most of what I've done recently is has been about um, has been for gig posters uh, because that's a really open playground for for being able to kind of do mostly what you want as long as as long as it looks cool enough to be on a gig poster. There's a lot of, a lot more freedom than you would get if you're doing a record cover, which is pretty fucking intense actually because you've got a lot of people <laughs> relying on you really representing their vision in some way or there's a lot there's a lot invested in a record cover but a gig poster is is uh pretty free and most you might have a couple of parameters of like anything but just don't draw this very literal thing or don't draw this or this this but but most of it's pretty free so if so if that's the case i would just the launching off point is most likely uh how does this band make me feel or what do i think Thinking about just how, how they present themselves in the world, or um, mm -hmm. how I would how I want how I would want them to look. Maybe um, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to put into words. But um, well, it's fascinating. But it would so it would be directed by, by or the or the the location of it, or just finding finding something finding something as a launching point, and then just going down an explorative path of um, just a visual feeling and vibe for it. I guess. Well, well, because I, okay, look, if it, if you were the type of person that sat down in front of a blank piece of paper and then you were just like, here we go. And you started to sketch this idea out and you sketched like that mastodon like, with the orangutan, I'd be like, dude, you're a fucking madman. <laughs> like, oh, you, yeah. You right. Know? Well, yeah, I don't, that's a great example actually, because I don't really know where that came from. Um, it was, I don't know. I don't, I think that was, that yeah, that was definitely one of sitting down and thinking. Okay, I can, I can draw anything I like for this. Firstly, what am I going to have fun drawing? Def I'm going to have fun drawing an orangutan, but um, I um, yeah, so something I wanted to draw, but but trying to put it into 
I really like the fact that with with um, with that band, their mythology is built around some real old world fantastical Tolkien esque um, giants and cyclopses and, and mm-hmm. old fantastical beasts. But then a lot of it is also related to almost futuristic out of space stuff, th- things that break through the barrier of time and space and things like that. So it was sort of playing, trying to get in that mindset, I suppose, of just opening yourself up to possibilities of, of thinking, how can I conjure up an image that is, that has a lot of questions to it. So there were, so I kind of just in a similar way, collaged together things that came from different places and different times. So the idea is that I've got this, um, given, uh, <laughs> sitting on the front of what appears to be a Viking ship, which is this old worldy vehicle, but it, it, he appears to be f- soaring through space, holding this orb, which is some sort of navigational device that only he understands. So there's something to do with the idea that maybe there's there's a there's some other other sort of sense, um, some sensory telecommunicative thing that this navigating creature. Uh, who is maybe in many ways more sophisticated than us can mm-hmm. c- can control this ship, but I don't know. Just just the weird amalgamation of something really old with something really futuristic in this strange context with a way more questions than answers. And uh, I guess, and to me, that in a, that's all that ties in with the idea of an image or a poster or being a screenshot, being a pause freeze frame on a on the middle of something. You know, it's like, hey, we're right in the middle of some adventure here. We don't know what's going on before, what's going on after. So, and in the same way, if you inject some things that are in- completely inconclusive, just post some questions in there too visually mm-hmm. by throwing in some things that don't look like they quite belong, I feel like you can get a lot more bang for your buck in terms of uh, making a stimulating and fun image. There's fun, just fun for me to make, but fun for people to think about. And yeah, something like that. I did. There's a, there's a huge envy in me that you're able to because I'm looking at this image right now as we're talking about it and there's a there's a bit there's a lot of envy in me that you're able to just sit down by yourself and do all this because if it was me on screen it would be okay so get in the monkey handler all right and make sure he's fed make sure he's happy and then you know you know and I've, I've I've spent all day or all month with the uh, production design team to get that staff looking perfect. Now bring in the smoke machine. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's it's so beautiful. And even if it looks good. Is it really going to look good on screen? You know, like <laughs> yeah. it's like all of that, um, all that stuff, all the Mobius stuff for the Hodorowski's Dune that never had. Like that stuff looked great on paper, but would it have, would it have actually looked good? I I don't know. You know, I, I think in our imagination, the way we think it might have looked would have been fucking great but yeah to actually pull it off and make it look good who yeah who knows well that's the thing about adapting comic books to movies and i think for quite some time you know obviously being a comic book nerd i was so disappointed especially with like the x-men stuff where i was reading a lot of like 90s x-men which was like jim lee jay lee like all these really great um very very detailed but also very heroic posing very colorful images and then you get brian singer's x-men stuff and it it looked like it might as well have been like a fucking wb tv show with like the the way that the colors were and the way that the lighting was and it's starting to slowly shift yeah into that these days 
where things are becoming more colorful and even like the new Godzilla trailer right now is like really vibrant and very sort of graphic. Um, so the transition has slowly sort of made its curve and even going back to Mad Max Fury well, Road, you know? So. Well, I'm interested. I don't coming from somewhere. So like I'm not, I've, I'm not a comic book guy. I have an awareness of it, but I didn't grow up reading the reading those comic books, but I remember the, um, there being i've i've seen it you must have seen this thing um I, i'm not sure who made it but there was there's a, a an example drawn by a famous comic book artist of um two batman panels i think it's like batman and robin sitting in the batmobile or something similar or similar cape superhero and the one of them is drawn to look very comic booky not it's not like super goofy looking but it's kind of very classic comic book style and it looks it looks perfect. Then the next, pa the panel next to it, same panel, but it's drawn really realistically, mm -hmm. too realistically. So then it looks like a couple of dudes in fancy dress sitting there, uh, you know, going to a costume party, sitting in in the front of the car, and it, it doesn't. It, the the point he was trying to make with it, I, I'm not sure who did it, but the point he was trying to make, and it was, I think, as an example to other comic book artists, saying it needs to live in its own world in its own universe. And in context of the Batman's universe in this panel, he, it looks great and it's, and it sells it to me. Whereas in the one next to it, where you've tried to, or you've tried to make it look too realistic. Mm -hmm. It's not working because it looks like a guy in a suit and it looks real goofy. So don't, don't try and crowbar this into this real world. It doesn't exist in the real world. It exists in its own comic book universe. And, that's where it really feels best and thrives. And I think that's the line that they've been swaying across with the, the comic book movie adaptions, trying to figure out is like, if, if you make it too colorful, too comic book looking, you know, like you're, you're sort of nineties Batman, Joel mm -hmm. Schumacher movies, people are like, ugh, it's so cheesy. It's so colorful. It's so goofy. It's so wacky and weird. Whereas then if you make it too gritty and dark, or, or if you make it too realistic, it's like becomes kind of problematic. Like I think with like the Nolan movies, obviously f phenomenal achievement, but I think they tread so close to being a little bit where it's so it becomes so realistic at times that you're like, hey, there's a dude in a rubber suit looks kind of out of place now because things are starting to look too, too real. real. Yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. gotta be some between those points where it can. I, I guess it's something to do with creating your own version of a real world that's yeah and i think it's tone. like i talk about this all the time i think it's tone i think it's really just tone i think the reason why it works well in nolan is that he's got a very specific tone in his films and he has a, a masterful grip on that tone where he's doing sort of like the the gritty crime stuff like the dialogue is the dialogue is very theatrical, isn't it? The sort of expositional dialogue and does it. And I've, I've had to, I, I went through a point with Nolan movies where I, I really loved them. I've loved all of them, seeing them first time around. And then I'd kind of fallen out of love with them. And I picked up on how kind of cheesy some of the dialogue and things, <laughs> the way that it's like the scenes in Inception where they do the sort of expositional explanations to people of how the uh, mechanics of that world work. And it's, it's certain it's like no one ever talks like this ever it's completely insane <laughs> if you analyze the way they're talking and interacting and and yet then you realize well no it, it, it kind of has to be that way that's that's what he set out to do that is what his world is and 
it, it actually makes sense if you get on board with it and you don't try and scrutinize it for being unrealistic because that's not at all yeah. what he's trying to do, you know? Well, yeah, it's it's. I don't know where the need... I'd rather have a movie that isn't realistic, but I buy it. This is this brings us back to Ridley Scott again. This is what I always loved about the original Blade Runner. And uh, this quote that I continuously reference when he was doing the uh, scene at Tyrell's office and Harrison Ford walks in and he sort of sits down and, and uh, runs uh, what's her name through the test for the first time. And there are all like those uh, water effects that are happening on the walls behind. And the, the quote was that he was talking to his gaffer, his lighting technician, and he's like, it just doesn't make any sense. And he goes, just do it because I fucking say to do it. And at the end of the day, he was yeah. building this world. He was building this visual tone and style through it that we all accepted because he set that tone and he goes, this is what the fucking world is. And this is what you're going to be a part of. And it's yeah. interesting. And we go, yeah, okay, fuck yeah, all right. There's water on the walls. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I get it, you know? Um, I love that shit, man. And I think that, you know, even with illustrators and, and illustrations, I think the difference is when someone has their voice or has their obsessions and has their tone and they really just sort of lean into it hard and they, they really go into it and they're like, this is the world I'm building and it may not be realistic, but this is the, this is the thing I like about it. This is that quick cut. This is that motion thing that I fucking love. And I love it so much and I'm obsessed with it. You're going to be obsessed yeah. with how much I'm obsessed with it. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very, very much. And I think that the, for me, the, the, the times when I felt the most conviction over that to really stick, stick to my guns is I'm not that good at kind of not that good at taking art direction actually um if if i'm working in in most projects i guess i don't really have to so much because i'm being commissioned to do the thing i do or at you know at, at that point maybe and, and and there's a trust in that but but obviously then there are other projects where you're going to have someone at some level art directing what you do and and when that happens i find that, that yeah that's that's when the kind of spikes come out of just realizing oh no actually i really believe in what i'm making here because you've challenged it and i <laughs> really want to stick to it the way it is so it might be things like i i don't in my illustrations i don't really use perspective at all even though that's one of the big principles of illustration that i would have learned of learned when i was a kid but i just i'm just not into it for the for what i'm doing as in if you if you look in uh if you look at that space given illustration it, there's not really any background to it there's not like planets and or layers of perspective or any perspective at all it's just just him on this one plane just shown there and and that's kind of what i've been doing with yeah if there's a figure a subject i almost want it to look strangely flat in a way and i don't i don't really know exactly why that is but um but it feels right to me. Maybe it's just a thing of, of just refining. I think it's about always refining and refining and refining and an idea and a voice. And if I start to open up those parameters and think about those things of adding perspective and background and and uh, foreshortening and things, because there's not really any of that at all. Even you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't have an image where someone's or something is reaching out towards you in a dramatic way with some crazy sort of uh foreshortening thing going on it just doesn't happen everything is just very much on flat layers and that's just how i like it so um rather than whereas if i if i bring that in as another variable 
it's just going to blow things wide open again. And I, I, I like the idea of just, yeah, refining the voice feels. Uh, well, I love it, man. I, I, I've always looked at it from like a photographer's perspective. You're more shooting. <laughs> you're more looking at it from like an 85 millimeter, like a sort of flattened out lens, which I really dig because what that does is it really like if I was to shoot that way, it really brings you into the moment and really brings you into the yeah. internal monologue of your subject, which I, I, I really fucking dig about the work. And it all, it almost yeah. becomes warm to that. And, and that, that lens, that lens stuff pickles my brain. Like think, you know, when you see comparisons of here's the same shot, the same subject, but using all these different lens types and focal mm -hmm. types so much just do way too many variables in there but but I, yeah i know what you mean the one that's on the top the short kind of field of focus yep just that that narrow plane of intimacy really is uh yeah that that feels much better <laughs> for sure like whatever i'm planning out something that's what i'm always thinking about is the preconceived notions that come with the with the lens the focal lengths and, you know, the smaller the focal length, the wider the lens, the more intense the bowing of the lens is because of the glass and because of how these glasses have to be constructed to focus this down onto a chip. So you start to get like these warp perspectives and these warp bowing things that happen. And, um, you know, and then you start thinking about formats too, which is fascinating because when you're sketching on a page, you can basically have that format be whatever you want it to be. But when you're ca when you're capturing stuff, you're sort of stuck in specific formats. You can always crop if you wanted to, but you know these days, mm. where the fuck are you gonna put that? So like, you're always playing with mm. format and you're playing with lens choice. And then when I choose lenses, it isn't about what looks the coolest. It's just what is the language of cinema setup prior to me. So like if I'm doing something with a super tight like 150 millimeter, which is just coming in here the entire face flattens down because of the optics and the focus is so tight on someone's eyes, that language has been established as like, what is this person thinking? And like everything else in the world doesn't matter to this, right. this person at the moment. What are they thinking? And then if you go the opposite end and you grab like an 18 millimeter and if you happen to get a lens that is an 18 millimeter but has a really tight focus so you can get that lens like right on the person's face, you could do the same thing where you're just focused on their their plane of field, but you're also seeing the entire world behind them, which sort of bows out. And that's like Michael Mann style. So like if you mm -hmm. go back and you look at like Heat or if you look at uh, The Insider does that really well, where he's just on like a super wide lens, but like over the shoulder, super tight on a guy's ear and you could still see the whole world, but it's soft focus and you're still you're getting that same effect with two different perspectives which is fucking crazy um wow yeah i guess in the michael mann side of it you're looking at that taking in you, you've got that intimacy but you've got this kind of oppression of all of the other stuff around the character yes. at the same time the way yes. I'm it from him. yeah it's yes. amazing that idea of the, the the hidden language of things we've grown we've just grown up with to understand what that what a certain thing means is amazing like what a cool powerful thing to inherit <laughs> yeah yeah and i think i think a lot of people just don't recognize it which is good like if you're an audience member i don't want you fucking recognizing that <laughs> i want you to just watch yeah. it and enjoy the fucking yeah, thing yeah yeah but 
if if you're someone getting into our businesses, then those are the tools and the tricks that you have in your toolbox or you have in your in your paintbrush fucking box, right? Um, so that way, when you want to tell the story that is subversive, if you want to tell the emotion underneath the dialogue, if you want to convey the tone or how cold or how warm that image is that you're drawing, brush strokes, yeah. there's, there's a fucking language. With, um, I love, I, I, I do, I really enjoy when I can get into it, the, the, um, those similar ideas really of, of thinking about someone looking at, let's say a poster and they, um, thinking about even the different ways that you could either guide the eye around the poster, which points they're going to hit in what order, and then how it's obviously how it's going to make them feel. And then where they're going to, first thing they're going to look at, last thing they're going to look at. And, or it could be, it could be, there isn't there there aren't three different things they're going to look at in a certain order. There's just one thing they're going to look at the whole time because you have, have used all of those tools to make that happen, which could be um, a focus of attention on something depending on the shape and structure of the image where your eyes naturally going to end up. Or but then it also could be color. So if you have some big contrasting pop of color in a certain place or a series of them at different levels, um, you can really get deep into that of, of using all those different tools structure shape color to to guide the eye around and decide then either use it in a way that's going to guide it comfortably or you could do the opposite thing and say hey do you know what i'm going to do i'm going to really fuck with you by using two points of focus which you're not going to be able your eye is not going to be able to decide which one to look at and it's going to send you into a frenzy and it's going to make, make you want to throw up, you know, because, or several <laughs> of them. If it's a poster first and you, you're like, okay, I'm just going to see how chaotic I can make this thing look. And I'm going to have color, color vibration in there where you pick two colors where the, the, the saturation and tone is so, even if they're different colors, the saturation and tone is so matched that it starts that, uh, you know, 1970s kind of or 60s film or poster art thing mm -hmm. where you've got the color vibration so you can have that's another sort of um uh, uh another little tool that you can uh utilize in there and and uh yeah having like many points of focus on there so you just end up in this yeah in this weird frenzy of of, of information hitting you at the same time or you can comfortably take someone by the hand and guide them through it by making it um yeah i don't know it's, it's similar stuff it's, it's it's definitely similar to those language of cinema of of ways you you could take the same scene and give it to five different directors with different yeah. agendas and such radically different experiences yeah which i love which i love about it i think that's what what what, what makes the artist medium so great is that there isn't there isn't like a rule set where it's like this is what it's supposed to be and you need to do this because then it starts to feel very much like a nine to five job. It starts to feel like a like a line like a line cook in a restaurant. You know what I mean? Where you're just you're banging these things out, and you yeah, know, yeah. there's a lot of that out right now, at least in the movie business. Where having um, the the idea of having a process that is repeated, or or, or is is just that is just like okay, I'm gonna. The new project has come in. I'm going to sit down and 
hit points one to ten and do the do the same thing that I do every time and join all the dots and color all the pieces. Like when you like the title of your pod, podcast, "In Love with the Process," I take that to be the process to be learning every project you do, reflecting back on it, thinking, "Holy shit, I've learned so much." When I think of myself at the start of this project, I was a different person, and I I feel like I barely knew what I was doing, and now you know a few months later or however long the project is i can't wait to get on to the next thing and invest like to me that's the that's the process we're talking about is the excitement of of getting onto the next thing and trying it out the the thing i find so weird about that is that when people ask me about the work that i'm doing they make an assumption that i know what i'm doing or that I've got some sort of level of expertise in it. And, and the truth of it is every single project I'm treading into the complete no man's land of unknowns. And, and that's how I would want it. And trying new things out every time and, and not necessarily knowing what I'm doing. And maybe sometimes being asked to relive some form of glory of like, oh, can you make something like this? And it's like something you made before. And it's like, firstly, I don't want to. Secondly, I don't know if I can. <laughs> I was, I was a different person at a different point trying to achieve different things. Some of it I fluked. Some of it I am really proud of, but I don't think I could do again. But more importantly, I'm in a different place and I want to do something different and interesting to me now. Otherwise, it's not going to be good. You know, I could try and redo it, but it's it's going to show. Like, if you're, if you're not excited about it yourself, I've made that mistake for, for sure of trying mm-hmm. to just be like, oh, hey, I did this once. Uh, it's just smash out another one of those and never <laughs> even if it does i don't feel good about it i don't feel proud of it you know yeah so, yeah, yeah i've been there about, i've been there too operating, man operating on the edge of 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 your skills and expertise which will be constantly evolving hopefully and that's where the best stuff happens though for sure i agree with you and then for me it's like it's the it's the ultimate high you know what I mean? When you're when you find this thing and you accidentally stumble across something, and if it's if it's on set and you're seeing it, or if it's something that you're doing in the edit room, most of the time it's in the edit room. Something that you're seeing mm-hmm. in the edit room and you're just like, "Fuck yes!" And you just have that moment. You just feel so good. And you watch it like a million times, and you're just like, "Man, this is it! This is it! This is it! This is it! This is what the it's whole like- thing was for." What's yeah, that? Yeah, and it's and it, the. Uh, that's so exciting about that moment of recognizing that is that you know it's a combination of your own ultimately you 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 could be the catalyst that made that happen at that moment and captured that thing and you can be proud of that that of having that moment but then you also know it's a combination of um so many other people's involvement and input and expertise to capture that one little moment and also um a certain amount of luck and or just serendipity about us that, that things just were fucking popping at that moment you captured the thing and it came out just how you wanted and better you know and that's <laughs> yeah. yeah it's great that's definitely the the best shit and it, yeah and you can always take you can take full credit for it but it's like also that um it's a <laughs> when it's a nice mixture of exceeding your own expectations what you're capable for but also knowing that it couldn't have happened if you hadn't put it into action and done it so yeah well, I think a really good, I think a really good comparison of that from uh, an illustration standpoint was this video I watched that you posted a while ago, which was uh, Ink Experiments, where you were drawing this skull and then you did like this really fascinating sort of ink wash and color wash yeah. over it, and how organic uh-huh. 
it was where you were just sort of blowing. It seemed like you were blowing on these puddles of ink and trying to get this. Yeah, I think I was at that point of, of um, you know, when you hit this, this kind of runs alongside what I was just saying in a way of trying to avoid getting to a point of stagnation where you realize you are retreading things or you've, you feel like you've hit a ditch of, uh, of um, you need to just kind of blow the cobwebs off and shake things up in some way. And, and whatever point I was at that time, I must have, yeah, I guess I was probably a bit lost with what getting excited about what the next thing would be to draw, you know, and not wanting to yeah. do the same thing again. Yeah. So, so the, the, usually the best way of getting or, or to rediscover the, 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 the style and process that you love. So some, sometimes or very often to do that, you've got to go down a completely different path, do something completely different for a short period. And then when you come back, you're like, Oh, now I remember why I love doing this thing or why I did it. So if that for me was pen and ink illustration, then, and I'd sort of momentarily fallen out of love with it or got bored with it for whatever reason. Then I remember then just busting out a canvas and thinking, okay, let's try my hand at something. I have no clue. I've never been a painter. Like I've never really been able to do great things with it and, and, um, or, or, or use brushes and inks in that way. It's just, or, or work spontaneously. It's always been very methodical. And so I thought, yeah, let's just try and have some fun with it and do something different and weird and see what, for, for kind of equally for recreation and fun and so yeah i just drew out that skull image and then I, I was night after night i kind of revisited it and filmed these little time lapses of it and i'd sort of stay up late drink a bit of whiskey maybe and just sort of get a good vibe going to some records and just start working over that image over and over and um it was super fun and at the end of it i remember people messaging me saying hey can i buy that um can I buy that painting you made of the skull? I really, a few people hit me up, which is really lovely, you know, like hit me up to see if they could buy it. But I had to tell them, I'm afraid like at the end, the thing was just black, black almost just like <laughs> I'd added so many layers to it, kept on going until it's, it's just gone. It doesn't really exist anymore. You know, like, <laughs> well, the thing you saw was just a little momentary, um, fleeting little, uh, transient thing. Um, and, and actually the, the, I really liked the videos because there were bits where I just kind of added um, gold ink or I'd add like gold ink. And then there's a super bright, vibrant red that I got when I was doing them. uh, I was experimenting with making marbling patterns for a while. And there's this one red ink that came with the the sort of uh, amateur marbling kit that I bought. And um, the other colors were fine, but the, the red was fucking killer. It was just like a perfect bright pinky red. And I managed to buy a big bottle of it then from the same supplier and, so I was just throwing a lot of that onto the skull too. And there was some cool moments when the gold and the red would just start to merge mm-hmm. and flow. And drip. But then when it settled and dried out, it didn't really look like anything. It kind of just all merged in together into this murky mess. But in those moments before it had dried and on video, you could see it, it was real nice. So if I could capture them and have it just freeze and stop and be that, that be the painting would be cool. But whatever that was, was just a, yeah, a weird experiment and to be honest i should learn i should do um <clears throat> try and do more of that because like i said most of what i do is is projects and and then there's a pressure there's so much pressure on those and i really put myself through a lot of pressure with building up to working on a piece for a project and it'd be nice to do a bit more kind of recreationally and mm-hmm. more experience 
really explorative with like because if that had been a project i couldn't present it to someone at the end with that fucking black canvas. <laughs> here you go you should have seen the video though the video looked great but this is your record cover now you know but um <laughs> i think that would have really worked out but um i've been trying to i was watching a video the other day about um uh, meditative meditative drawing um <clears throat> and it's it's similar to uh similar to automatic writing you know like the people people use it in, in sort of seance type scenarios mm -hmm. and, and and um psychic uh, readings and things where where you have someone will just connect with some um other plane of communication and just start writing and come out with all sorts of crazy messages and, and uh, it's it's a very real phenomenon people have managed to commute I, I i'm not looking to do that from drawing i'm not looking to draw some crazy shit from the the other side of the veil or anything but i i for a meditative thing there's there's uh, i was watching a video about doing that and apparently um like um uh frank frazier and and um what's his name comic book artist uh jack kirby and all, mm -hmm. all these great guys used to used to do this thing where you you would just get your your your, your body into a really relaxed meditative process and just start drawing in just a simple pencil and paper but just not stop and and eventually when you hit that point of complete relaxation you can just draw wherever it takes you and whatever you make shapes patterns and different densities and things but not like anything you'd normally draw just this completely free-flowing which sounds I, I don't know if I could get to that point of being not I think I'd always still be too self-conscious it's yeah. like what you're saying about seeing you uh, on the zoom call having your your, your image present yeah, yeah, yeah. yourself like I, think I would always still have this nagging thing of like this has to be good though or this has to be someone's going to see this and it needs to be good or or you're going to see it needs to be good or, I don't know if I but so that's my own challenge I, if I can I've bought some big pads of paper and I, I want to try and do it as a daily ritual of trying to do this meditative drawing and fill a page with um, probably a total mess but I, I don't know if, if uh, the, 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 the point of it in this video that the guy was saying is that if uh, with people like Mobius drawing in this way he because he, he'd seen Mobius do it and and, and he, he's like hey what, what's that you're drawing it doesn't look like any of your any of your normal shit and he's like oh i do this every day because it frees me up and when you get to that point of relaxation that's where the really good shit comes that's where my most crazy ideas and my all these weird alien landscapes and insane characters he's come up with that's the place he finds them you know so mm -hmm. he's and and it's i guess it's when you're at your most relaxed almost your most kind of childlike innocence isn't it of just yeah 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 criticizing yourself you're not self-conscious that's it that seems to be it whether you're talking about that in a drawing meditation or from what i've understand about meditation in general is that you're trying to just try to figure out a way to drop down the guards and try to drop down that insecurity and try to drop down that stuff to get into a, a free-floating state some of that stuff is fascinating to me some sometimes i'm such a cynical prick sometimes i hear that stuff and i'm like I'm like, all right, all right. Transcendent, transcendental meditation or whatever it is that uh, David Lynch does. I'm like, hey, does that work? <laughs> I can listen to him talk about it and I'm like, fuck yeah, this, this sounds great. And I've never, yeah, I've, I, I've, I've entertained these ideas for a long time and never been able to discipline myself to get into them. Because I think we're all, yeah, that, that even if we don't realize it, we're all so 
so self-conscious of everything we're doing at every given minute and uh, I'd like to be able to try and get to that place because I suffer terribly with like sleep deprivation insomnia and like I don't know how to I don't know how to do it I don't know how to how to sleep like I don't know how to what do you do in that moment like how do you switch off because that's when all the all the crazy ideas start coming you know mm-hmm. but then also that's when good ideas start coming like I was trying to find working on a movie poster um I'm working on a movie post at the moment. I can't say what it's for, but it's, uh, it, it, it was something where I had to come up with a visual concept that didn't really give away the movie. You know, it's often the thing. It's like something that kind of sums up the movie if you've seen it, but if you haven't seen it, it's not going to ruin it for you and it's not going to show too much, this sort of thing. And I was working on it then the other day, trying to finish it up. And um, I said to my partner, Johanna, I was like, I don't when did I come up with the idea for this? I was like, I don't remember. I'm drawing this thing and I don't remember ever thinking of this. And I was kind of freaked out, actually. I was like, I'm drawing this image. <laughs> I don't remember. Where did it come from? I, I, I know I came up with it, but I don't remember coming up with that. I don't remember drawing a, a post-it note of it or anything like that. And she was like, oh, don't you remember? It was, you woke up in the middle of the night and were like, I've got it. I've got the idea. And uh, I probably was not awake. I probably woke her up is what she meant. And, um, <laughs> I, and I got up out of bed and went and got a sketchbook and drew down the thing and then went, finally went to sleep with a smile of just like, yeah, I think I've come up with something. And then the next day, like the elves and the shoemaker or something just kind of was, had this idea there. So there's something in that that I guess if you are drifting off into dreamland, that's maybe the perfect place to... <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I don't want to perfect my sleeping pattern because then I won't be able to come up with those crazy ideas. Well, that's the, you know, you and I suffer from the same thing. And this has been a problem of mine for years. It's been like a lack of sleep and insomnia. And, um, you know, I've, you know, now, you know, now crossing into my mid 30s or 40s, rather. Now crossing into my mid 40s, I'm just like, oh, fuck, does this mean I'm like losing time on my life? Um, and so mm. I just started reading this really good, great book. If you're interested in it, I'll send it to you. This really great book on, on sleep and, uh, how mentally what it's doing to us and why we, uh, can't fall asleep. And I went through, it isn't like, I'm always, like I said, very cynical. So it isn't like one of those, like, change your life, change your diet. Now you've become like a fucking sleep. No, no, no. This is like a guy that breaks it down where he goes, okay, here's the realities of how our brain works. And if we start to overthink things, here's the chemical that gets put into our brain, which keeps us awake. And these are the reasons why that happens. And so for me, I'm actually going to do a whole podcast with him. He's going to be on the show. Um, But for me, it was just about realizing that when I'm in a mode like that, like you're like you're talking about, where uh, shit's running through my brain and I need there's no fucking way for me to sleep, I just realized just get up, like don't stay in bed, don't torture yourself, don't put yourself through. Yeah. I should be sleeping now. Just get the fuck up and get up and go in the room and write it down. Write it down. Go through the whole process of doing it, because then once you get that down, you'll go to sleep, and we all eventually will fall fucking asleep. Um, and so mm. it really sort of changed my life with that where, where now, yeah. like I just had it two nights ago where I woke up and I'm like, I got this fucking idea and, and I could not get back to sleep. And I, I only gave myself 15 minutes ago. I'm up and I got up and I went out yeah. and I sat yeah. down and I wrote it down and then I went to sleep. So it's always a good move. I, if, 
if I ever have done that, it's always worked out better. And if I ever have been lying there thinking about it and then stayed there, hours will go by and I'm like, why the fuck didn't you just get up and do something, anything, just something to shake it up? Definitely something like that. You go and sit and read a book for a minute or just, uh, yeah, write something down. The one thing, the one thing I have been doing, and actually I was going to say that I think I know about, I think I know the book you're referring to and I know about when that book came out, I was just horrified by the idea of reading it. So I was like, I don't want to know how much my lack of sleep is fucking me up. You know, I was kind of, <laughs> but maybe I should approach that and not be so fearful because yeah, I, I was kind of like, Ish, I don't, don't even tell me because I, I, I know I've always been so bad with sleep. Well, right, 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 right. Look, 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 look. I'm just going to tell you this uh, right now. What he, what he hmm. says in this book, which is really great, is that we actually sleep more than we think we do. And he had this really great analogy where he has like a sleep study practice and he's a, a doctor that's very specific for it. And he would go out into the waiting room and in the waiting room would be uh, a, a patient that had fallen asleep in the chair, literally like head back, mouth open, falling asleep mm. in the chair, goes out, wakes them up, brings them into the room and says, okay, so when's the last time you slept? I haven't slept in months. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, dude, I just <laughs> fucking woke you up. I've woken up and, uh, and said to my partner, like, yeah, I, didn't, I haven't slept all night. You know, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. Um, I hope you had a good sleep. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't sleep all night. And then suddenly, then I'd suddenly remember a dream I had and be like, oh, "Shit, must have." Then I'd kind of confess, like, "Oh, I must have slept a bit because I had a dream." So, yeah. <laughs> but that's actually that's the other thing I've got super into recently is. Um, do you keep a dream journal? Have you ever done that? Sometimes, sometimes I will. Yeah. Really good. Like I ne- I've never done it in the past. I, I, and I'd always be one of the people who, one of those people is like, yeah, I don't really dream very much, but, um, something, um, my partner Johanna has been doing that for years and years and years. And she told me, she's like, if you start doing it, it'll train your brain to start remembering dreams. And I was like, fuck, that sounds really exciting. And I've been reading at the same time, uh, Podorowski's psychomagic book where he talks a lot of it, he talks about dreams he's had and how they inform things in his life. So I was kind of jealous of that almost. Just like, fuck, man, there's all of these, I probably am having these dreams maybe when I am sleeping and I'm not remembering them. And it seems like this whole untapped gold mine of, of just cool things that could be out there or ideas <laughs> and thoughts and visions. So uh, uh, what Johanna explained to me is that if you start reading, uh, writing, sorry, if you start writing down your dreams each night, your brain actually starts to program itself somehow to start realizing, oh shit, no, this is important stuff. You want to remember, let's help you do that. We're going to, and and over time, as long as you do it, the moment you wake up, you have to, and, and, and we've got that quite disciplined now. So we have a journal next to the bed. And if if one of us wakes up and it's just the other person starts to try and talk, like, <laughs> stop I can be like wait I gotta get the dream down because you think you'll remember like I, I the other the other night I was dreaming that I was going to this forest somewhere and um, I wanted to get to this forest and I was on this bus going to this other place and I needed to get to this forest and in the dream the forest had a name and it was a Welsh a Welsh word name but I understood it and in the dream the moment I woke up I knew exactly what it was two words I knew exactly what they were and then minutes later after having a bit of a conversation and talking about the dream or whatever picked up the journal to write it down i was like fuck 
and I just couldn't remember it. And I remember something kind of similar, but but I know I did have that name the moment I woke up, and it just it's just, I always think of it like bubbles popping, you know, like the dream disappearing. It's like yeah. um, eternal sunshine kind of thing, isn't it? Of just that you can feel the dream disappearing. But if you do that, if you you'd be amazed by it how when you the, in those first five minutes, ten minutes after you wake up, it's very very fresh, and you can write it down. And the thing that is the craziest is literally one or two days later. I'll pick up the dream journal and flick back a page and read through one. And it's as if someone else has written it. I'm just like, I don't remember any of this. I don't remember dreaming this. I don't remember writing it. And it, and when you stack them all up day after day, so much cool shit. And it's interesting, just re- yeah, reoccurring themes that you might have not realized were on your mind and trying to decipher what they could mean or, or uh, strange characters who appear like, uh, you know, I was like guest starring some kid who in school when you were ten years old. <laughs> I thought about it in forty years or something. Just some crazy personal turn up for no reason in the dream. I dude, yeah. I love. I I'm obsessed with it because one of the things that I love about uh, my films and in my work, uh, and I've recently came to this understanding. I, I I don't. You know what it was is I didn't sit down and define my work personally, and it, recently I had to, and, and I had to think about it a lot, and. I realized that what I love about storytelling is I love what I love the vast scary unknown that is our subconscious and mm-hmm. you know how we think we have control of this thing and we have these rhythms and essentially all your subconscious is, is it's almost a barometer for all these different chemicals that are just spraying themselves around in your fucking brain and making you feel all these different ways and um, I love getting lost in that combination of science and this uh, almost like this old librarian that at night <laughs> when you go to sleep it's like okay we have all someone came in here and got a bunch of fucking books and got a bunch of shit laid them all out and i have to go restack them and we just are yeah. in our dream just a part of this restacking where they have this huge it's like okay there's that kid that you went to fifth grade with this book's been out for fucking years like let's put this away. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. and, and then it becomes this weird stew of all these different me- moments and memories and, and smells and all this shit that just sort of becomes that experience which is fucking wacky because essentially we're having an experience based upon experiences that we've already had and then when you write it down in a dream journal you're then having an experience processing something that was processing all the other things. Uh, yeah. We're not actually really meant to even know. That's supposed to be done when the workshop is closed after hours yeah. in the library. Just like, okay, library's closed. We're going to fucking sort through all these books, get them back on the shelves in right order. You're not actually probably meant to pay any attention to it at all. It's yeah. probably the truth. Yeah. You're not meant to think stuff that's being processed and, and, and shuffled through and sorted out. But at the same time, you could also argue that, I mean, if you if you are an insomniac and you're not sleeping, you're not doing any of that. That's the danger zone. Is when none of that shit is being sorted through. It's just piling up, and that's just all of their. You know, it's like if you've got your computer running with a ton of programs running in the background, humming away. Mm-hmm. It's like all that shit to get through and be processed in the middle of the day when you're trying to focus on other shit and uh, guiding you in strange ways that you don't really necessarily want. Oh, it's funny that you bring up the computer analogy because back in the day with PCs, you used to have to defrag your PCs. You used to have to like go through the process of telling it to put everything back where it belongs and take it out of the memory. And, and that's kind of what I feel like a lot of dream work is for me, where it's like, 
how the fuck did these two combinations of things ended up together? And then, you know, the fascination in that, because we, it's one of those things that we have zero control over, you know, like it just Mm. sort of does it on its own in the background. And you're like, what the fuck? And for me, it, yeah. I think, you know, you look at someone like Lynch is obviously such a great advocate for that, pushing through that veil of, of presenting us with crazy dream world images that could be horrific or um, provocative or, or uh, just, just strange, you know, just like provoking in a way of just being fucking weird. And, and I love that he's completely unapologetic about it leans into it hard and doesn't even <laughs> feel to explain or justify any of it because he's like, Hey, you know, it came from me, but I can't explain it. And I don't have to, cause it would be, it would be wrong for me to try and explain it actually, you know, cause how could I honestly explain it? But, uh, yeah, there's some, there's, it's a, a great source for creating interesting, mysterious stuff. And going back to that idea of the, um, creating visuals or like I think that's the thing with the difference between cinema and 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 a still image is with the still image it's actually quite easy for me to say hey here's a freeze frame well, I'll leave you to guess what happened before and after and and what's happening behind the image that you can't see and all of those mysteries and I think that the the danger with cinema is that it's too easy to tell too much actually it's too easy to show too much and and in fact the more mysterious you can make it and have find just that point where it's engaging enough, but you let the viewer do a certain amount of the heavy lifting themselves or, or not. You've, you've done the heavy lifting for them, but they've just enough to carry them through and have them engage and, and fill in, fill in I, some blanks. And I, I agree with your initial response on that, where the viewer does the heavy lifting. That's where it's the best. I mean, yeah, that's that what they it. do when they look at your work. And it's actually more difficult to do that in the film world because you know, when I see it is when, when uh, you're watching horror movies and it's completely obvious that the director is like a huge fan of like uh, gore and gore effects. And when you mm-hmm. see a prosthetic on screen too fucking long and it's like, look at this great creature that we sculpted out of all this, all of this rubber and, and, and uh, prosthetic shit. And then it's on screen for like fucking three or four beats way too long. And, and then you're... Yeah. You're just like, there's no magic behind that. I'm not being able to fill in the blanks. I can see all the seams. I can see how the pump yeah, works. I, I remember being being a kid and, and seeing Alien for the first time. And I already had a pretty good idea about the movie because my dad had told me the story of it, which is probably not a good idea at the, like, so when I was a really small child. But I remember him telling me it was like that would be like my bedtime story or something like that. Um, <laughs> story really well before i'd seen the movie and then i finally saw the movie one night and and uh because he'd video he'd tape every movie that was on all of our four tv channels that we had in the uk at that time um but he'd tape out all the all the late night movies horror movies whatever but i remember finally watching alien and being fucking terrified going to bed not definitely not sleeping and just being completely uh yeah, just legitimately scared by a really scary movie. But the profound thing I remember was lying in bed being thinking the the thing that was scariest was I was like, I don't know what the thing looks like. Yeah. I've seen the movie and the actual titular character, the actual alien, I don't know what the fuck it looks like. All I could remember was flashes of teeth, just the big, just these huge teeth and then more teeth behind it and then these weird shapes and, and um, 
now, obviously, we know the fucking xenomorph in all of its anatomical glory, and we know exactly what it looks like from every angle, and we've seen figures and toys and models and comic books and every fucking version of it, and, like, you or I could probably sit here and just draw it, and it'd be pretty fucking accurate to what the thing. We know the structure of that thing. Sure. But at the time, lying in bed as, as, a, as a young kid, having seen that movie, I was like, what the fuck did I just see? And, and what kept me up at night was not knowing what I'd actually seen there and just seeing these flashes of horror and, and mystery about it. And it, what, what obviously that has been lost over time and in, in the exposure of that and shining a light on that creature. But first time round, having such limited access to what it looked like actually fulfilled the thing. It's like the HP uh, Lovecraft mentality where in his books, Lovecraft would describe something like Cthulhu and he'd say, you know, but a lot of it was like, he would describe it as undescribable. You know, he'd kind of say <laughs> this creature like any man had ever seen. Um, I can't even, you know, he, he would not, he, he would not be able to actually describe it because it was so unimaginable. And that was in itself horrifying and scary because it's just infinite horror then, you know, mm-hmm. um, which it was. So yeah, me lying in bed, freaking out over, overwatching alien was because it was infinite horror because like it could be anything my childhood brain could uh yeah process yeah bang there's your alien look at him you know like show show exactly what he looks like to the audience yeah yeah it's funny because you you look at how successful that is on alien and same thing with jaws but both of them have both of but them so had to do it. They had to do it because of the technical stuff. So like the jaw shock yeah. didn't fucking work. And then with yeah. Alien, Ridley Scott was like, "This is a guy in a fucking rubber suit. <laughs> like, I don't want to just show a dude in a rubber fucking suit. Let's let's." And that that's his genius about coming back to that atmosphere. You know what I mean? Where he's like, "Bring in smoke, bring in haze, bring in strobes, bring in all this stuff to hide this creature, to hide this thing." Um, and then. Yeah. The he really sort of showcased the most phallic, the most horrific portions of uh, Giger's design, you know, and yeah, it, that was it. it. Feels like the funny thing with that, as you say, the phallic thing of like if you, I know there are a few things they had to make concessions on. Like I think when he when the original Giger egg was basically just a straight up vagina on top of the egg, mm-hmm. and they were like, uh, can you just <laughs> to just make it a little less uh pronounced but he he and then he so he made it that sort of cross-shaped opening and and changed it a bit but but outside of that he you know he kept the the whole kind of phallic shape of the head and those things and i think if we had seen that in the original movie it's like we know it's there now we can see it there now when we go if we go back with that knowledge but i see that a lot now where we're looking at the you can go into like a forbidden planet shop or one of the you know buy models of it, see all of these different versions of it, see the original artwork, and it's so clear. And then over time, the more I've gone back and revisited, I'm like, holy shit, how did <laughs> how did this big blockbuster movie w- that it became, uh, you know, one of the most uh, cl- classic movie of all time, how did that manage to smuggle that in? You know, how did, it, <laughs> how did they get away with that? It's fucking awesome. And because it's, it's so clear now, we know it now, but it, at the, the, also through that hiding in the shadows and, Having um having it kind of merged back into the into the structure of the ship and all of those things really fucking really cool like really really amazing they just trojan horsed in 
massive fucking it, dick, really. and it comes it comes back to i mean i love our obsession with ridley it comes back to ridley man and it comes back to this guy who was hired to do a fucking sci-fi movie he was hired to do a, uh basically a monster in the house movie um and mm. this came out right after star wars so you know with star wars becoming such a fucking blockbuster the studios were like anything in fucking space we don't give a shit like yeah. we'll green light it and um, from what I have heard or read or seen in different articles or, or documentaries, uh, they brought Ridley in not knowing that he was going to blow it up as big as he did. And coming in with such an art background and being so hyper-focused and his confidence level, because he was in his 40s at that point. So like walking mm. onto set and just being like, this is the details and I want this to be this and I want it to be that. And so he was so hyper-focused that I think they were concerned about budget at a certain point, but... Um, it was his confidence in the art and his tone that really made that movie what it was. Like if a younger director was hired to do that sort of thing, or if I was hired by Disney to do that sort of thing currently, that would never, it would never come through because. Yeah. So, and, and if you, if you go back to that time and think of what we would have known as being, I mean, what were <laughs> Obviously, Star Wars, the, like the the aliens in it, are very colorful and goofy and over the top. And and prior to that, monsters were always like guy in a suit. And and which, amazingly, Alien did end up being guy in, guy in a suit, but it doesn't read that way at all in the yeah. movie. And even that, it doesn't come across as that. And it took me years to realize that it was a, a sort of anthropomorphic humanoid figure. Actually, like I I, I always saw it as some weird shaped creature with with a head and teeth but i never i always thought the body of it was some other crazy thing but because of the way it was shot but um the uh thinking back to that time the the thing that really if, if you if you pitch that idea you can imagine in the studio them being like yes they show up and then there's like oh my god there's an alien here and there's like, like now when we hear that word you know if we hear that title of that movie and we think of alien which is like fuck you know it right. feels old and dark and powerful and intense and scary and all of the all of the cool shit that you and i think about with that movie when we say that word we're like fuck yeah alien you know but prior to that if you pitch that movie and we're like so yeah this this happens they go out and there's a fucking alien out there and he stows me on the sh-. like yeah well what are we talking are we talking like some goofy star wars cantina dude shows up on the <laughs> ship you know like yeah we know with with hindsight of what we know now of, of that movie could have would would have not looked good on paper probably at all um, at all the thing that always kind of blows my mind about it same with blade runner though is that star wars i grew up obsessed with star wars and um i read everything i could about it from being a real young kid read, always reading about george lucas and the making of it and all this stuff was always way more into the make reading the making of movies than I was even watching the movies. Like I just loved finding out about it and 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 the process of um, definitely the effects side of it, especially. But we always celebrate how incredible Star Wars looked for 1977, and that's true and justified. And they did incredible things and made amazing leaps in 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 uh, the whole industrial light and magic side of it. Mm-hmm. But then, which was only like a couple of years later. It looks like a million times better. It's like how, and then Blade Runner. You're like, how do these even exist in the same decade? Like, I can't. It's it's. Ins- and then during the eighties, you get other sort of cheesy sort of um, Buck Rogers type things, or like uh, other other 
science fiction, you know, at space dramas and things, which look nowhere near as good as obviously Alien or Blade Runner. But but yeah, even now I'm, I'm always baffled by that. Like we celebrate how how amazing people talk about how cheesy the original Star Wars isn't. Is super, it is super cheesy, of course. And then, but then people make excuses and say, "Yeah, but you got to remember, this was 1977." It's like, yeah, but two years later they made Alien, and it's not cheesy at all, and it looks fucking amazing. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know what that means, but I mean, it, yeah, I, I think the further away we get from it, the more we can look back and think like, how can you make something that just looks so timeless and brilliant at that point? It's crazy. It's just, and we've it's, been struggling to try and match it ever since. Yeah. Like people try and no one can fucking pull it off, make it look that fucking cool. Like the opening scenes when just all those computer terminals are opening up and coming to life and we just see all those still shots of the ship and the little bleepy cut. Even though we know, yeah, you've it's like, it's supposed to be in the future, but you've used some old school dot matrix fucking yeah, yeah. green computer screen stuff, but it does not matter at all. Like it looks so legit. And so, fucking well, real and lived in. But he, but he knows yeah. his he knows his tools. He knows his tools so well. And like the the specifics. This is what I love about Ridley Scott's movies. And it's kind of heart disheartening that he got so much shit for it. Um, I mm. love the idea that he's like, look, man, this is my own little world. This is my own little vision. I'm gonna I'm gonna jam pack it with as much visual stuff as I can because I'm a I myself am a visualist and that's what I do, and so then he builds these spaces and and creates a smell. I always say a smell in movies. He creates this tone. He creates this smell that is the rule for that whole film. And you you don't give a fuck that when you're watching it now and you're like, well, obviously those computers are from the fucking seventies. You know, yeah. none of that matters because it's all part of it's 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 like his sketch lines. It's like the way he the way he draws and like each illustrator has their own uh, sort of visual signature on like how they sketch things and how they put it together. And I think that when you're a filmmaker, it's those details that are those sketch lines are those visual stamps that uh, create a world for an audience and the audience fucking buys it like 100 percent, you know hold on yeah like that's so true yeah all the ridley scuffs really scott stuff that we've touched upon that that is really what it's about totally selling it to you just being like yeah this is convincing us that that world exists and there's got there's got to be just like a certain mindset to get behind to i guess to convince yourself that it exists leaving <laughs> <laughs> it you know not not to be like oh shit how can we how can we convince the audience? But I guess if you if you've convinced yourself that that whole world looks a certain way, really, yeah, incredible, incredible stuff. But it's There's also- another uh, the other example that uh, sprang to mind of the the uh, along with the the uh, Jaws shark um, uh, um, in in the thing the scene when they see the dogs first transform in the in the fucking dog pen mm-hmm. and. Uh, Rob Bottin, fucking crazy dog creatures, and but they're like, I can kind of see that this is just a dude with a hand puppet with your cool looking gnarly, fucking alien dog turned inside out and some weird plant thing coming. It looks great, but if you put if you put the lights on it and we see it, no. it's not gonna look, not gonna read well, you know. And and the way they got around it was basically realizing, hey, well these guys have just shown up with flashlights, 
So everyone's bus, there's no light in this room. Everyone's come into the room with flashlights. The lights are all over the place. So you're just catching little glimpses here and there of catching the edge of something. And, and that worked like a fucking charm because I remember also watching that movie the first time and being like, what did I just see? And that's exactly what, that's the entire point of that movie is supposed to be, you don't know, you've never seen anything like this before. You don't know what you're looking at. We don't know what you're looking at. It doesn't even know what it is. You know, yeah. it's like a, yeah. a weird DNA fucking soup of all these different things it's touched and communicated with. Um, so it, it has to be completely unjustifiable and unexplainable. So let's show it little incremental glimpses of information as the flashlights pick up the edges of this form for a moment and then you cut back to Kurt Russell or something. You know, you, it's really cool. And and even the, the effects they pulled off brilliantly and beautifully, like the, uh, like the spider head, that's lit brutally backlit. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much as you know, and, and it looks amazing, but it's like such a cool, dramatic way to do it because once again, you're just seeing a hint of the shape of it, mm-hmm. which is so much scarier. And and it's the danger we've stepped into with, obviously with the free reign of CGI effects being just this wild fucking, you can put anything you want on screen is just like, a nightmare really for trying to um, (laughs) tell me about it reasons to hide stuff because it's like well we don't have to we can show anything we like now but it's not not necessarily the way to go you know yeah it's it's a night i'm in the process of designing a creature right now and that's what i'm doing for one of the movies that i'm doing and it's a nightmare because you if you don't have those restrictions you actually have to put those restrictions on yourself and luckily budget ends up being a big restriction but if you don't have those restrictions to play within CGI and the, the other issue that I have with CGI is that CGI opens up to so many more people. So like if you're just doing like practical stuff on set, it's usually you, the cameraman, and then whoever built the prosthetic, maybe a couple people that are puppeteering it. And then you accidentally find things as you're doing it. Like they're moving a light and the gaffer's putting a light and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. don't go where I said to go. Leave it there. And let's put more smoke. And that looks fucking creepy. But when you start to get into the CGI world, you start getting into like multiple people that are in computers somewhere else. And so then you have to go and sort of go into a corporate office and sort of direct what this fucking creature is going to look like with all these people that are on computers and scrutinizing over like specific little details and getting lost in the technical aspects of it. Where at the end of the day, you're like, can we accidentally find something it's like with my film 12 km i don't know if i've showed you any of my stuff but uh my film i was i i've seen i've seen some bits actually i was watching the um you the the reel of the of the effects oh the creature Um, it's not even the 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 macro stuff yeah it's fucking oh my god it looks incredible that that footage is delicious isn't it it's just amazing well and the reason i did it was for just that hold on someone is that a car it's like someone just started a boat out in front of my house. What is that? Oh, weird. Anyway, so the reason... Uh, if you, I'm just going to top my drink up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Jesus Christ. Yes. 
So just to quickly wrap that up, the, the reason I did that was that I knew that I didn't have enough money to do CGI the correct way. And being a shooter myself and understanding very similar to how you were moving the, that ink around in front of that, uh, that skull is that in the, the, the accidents is where we find beauty and it, you can't really find beauty in the accidents of CG. Like accidental CG just looks like shit. Cause it always has to be. Polished. That even exists. Cause it's all gotta be programmed to move in a certain way and have a certain structure. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a puppet still of sorts, isn't it? A CGI creature creation is a puppet, but it's only going to go where you tell it to go. You can't, there's no. Yeah. And so the, the, the challenge, sort of- the challenge with, uh, and sorry, we keep talking over each other because of this fucking internet lag. Um, but the challenge of, uh, that for me was that I had to figure out how to puppeteer fluid. And so I ended up finding this magnet, magnet, magnetic ferrofluid. So I was able to puppet, puppet it underneath the table with uh, high-powered magnets. And then uh, wow. we actually created chemical experiments by introducing uh, some of that ferrofluid to heat. And one of the byproducts of bringing a magnet to it is that it would create these spikes that would uh, basically sort of uh, symbolize the magnetic field. And then if you... Mm if you uh, introduced it to heat, so we would uh, put a, um, a heat gun next to it, a high-powered high heat gun, and then it would start to solidify and almost fossilize. And so then if I di- wow. did that in reverse, and I shot it with like a super, super, super macro lens, so when you're blowing it, it's blowing off little particles, and these particles are becoming like that sort of flying particle stuff, which was interesting. And so then when you do it in reverse, these particles are actually forming a fluid and then the fluid can then be puppeteered. So it was this really fascinating, like two days of just experimenting. Wow. Yeah. I I had no idea how you were achieving that. And yeah, the magnetic thing is so fucking cool. Dude. It's, it was, it was a lot of fun. And what a cool, yeah, a really nice balance of something you have a certain amount of control over, but you don't really know exactly how it's going to behave, what it's going to do. <laughs> no. It's a Simpson. And it almost is behaving like this mysterious life form that you can't quite ever understand. It's, it's perfect. <laughs> I could watch that shit all day. It's, yeah, really beautiful. Thanks, man. It was, and it's, it's the collaboration process, finding that with people and, and working with, Lyndon Gledhill, who's this amazing biochemist and a fucking photographer at the same time. And um, so like finding that stuff really, we shot that before we shot the movie, we shot all those effects and that really set the tone for what I was going to do with the film and then set the tone for the atmosphere and all that sort of stuff that that plays in the film. And I, dude, I fucking love that stuff and and progressing into features now because I'm doing a feature that's the challenge. The challenge is how do I still maintain that adventure sort of exploration in a structured environment that has a lot of fucking money behind it? And and how can I still foster this exploration under a fucking deadline? So that's really the difficulty with it. Yeah, that, seem, that seems like such a um, significant question that, just from just from having seen the difference between uh, 70s George Lucas to 2000s George Lucas, you know, and we all saw what happened there when you're suddenly given complete free reign over 
anything you like can happen. Anything you like can be seen on screen. And mm-hmm. The comfort of a computer studio, you know, versus a huge weight of pressure and restrictions and huge technical challenges and which produce the good shit. So yeah, it's really, it's really tricky, but I think a lot of it with things like it's almost stripping it back to trying to think about what do you actually want? What's the more effective thing for the viewer to see? Cause in those examples, if you were to see something to do with that, with that visual language of if, if, if you were, uh, the, someone who if okay so say we got to interview uh ripley after her horrendous experience in the first alien movie and mm-hmm. say draw us what you thought you saw she'd be like i don't have a fucking clue what i saw but i know it had <laughs> big teeth you know she would have had the same recollection of what i think i saw she wouldn't have been able to draw a perfect xenomorph you know so if you can strip it back to try and think about what actual experience do you want the person to have and how much information do you want them to have versus if you were to watch a, um, you know, if you think something like Cloverfield, that movie was so, I almost wish that we'd never seen the creature yeah. at the end because the, just every moment that you didn't see it was so fucking exciting just because you were living the experience of, of, the, uh, of the characters in it who were just like, what the fuck did I just almost see? <laughs> yeah. Knocking over a building. Yeah. yeah. Well- and then the the beauty where this is such a great tangent and we'll, we'll slowly wrap this up. Um, but the beauty of uh, Spielberg and what I love about his movies is that it's all about the, it's all about showing you briefly what's going on, but it's all about seeing how people are looking at it and how they're responding to it in the close ups and the responses and the, the slow yeah. dollies in and the stand up turn and look and the fucking sense of shock. Cause at that yeah. point we, as an audience can't identify with this crazy fucking thing, but we can totally identify with how they're responding to this crazy thing, which is cool. Yeah. It's Spielberg's kind of like my Bible on everything of film. Just, I mean, having grown up probably similar period to you of grown up as an eighties kid, you, you would, that is cinema to you really, isn't it? That feeling when you think about any of those, uh, early Spielberg movies is really what it's all about. And, but even still now, when I think about make move, move movie making in any capacity or, or, or storytelling or any sort of visual storytelling, any of that stuff, I can't help, but always come back to Spielberg as examples of how to do it right and, and how to do it effectively. And it, it is that really, it's like the whole, I know it's been said a million times, but I always love talking about the whole thing of the the you know the whole like et is not about the alien and jaws isn't about the shark you know it's that whole thing it's about those human characters and their experiences in it and it just happens to be that the catalyst is one of these extraordinary things but um he he was so smart with really focusing on the human reaction and interaction between them to those things and and then we've seen it play out after he'd have those huge blockbuster movies <laughs> people <laughs> knock off versions of them just not you know and you get mac and me or something and you don't <laughs> you're not realizing why or like a million uh, shark movies and people thinking hey well got the shark in there we've got this and you know they, they think they ticked all the boxes and they missed out on realizing that his Spielberg was such a great communicator with his 
cast and with the in figuring out ways to um i don't know really dig deep into this psychological side of of uh, of how those characters were dealing with some crazy circumstance or finding some sort of analogy within it too for the like the disruption in their lives by the weird visiting thing of the alien or the shark was just another way of showing like oh hey these kids family is falling apart because their dad has left mm-hmm. and that's the thing that's traumatizing them and actually the fact that yes this alien has shown up has actually kind of been a comfort you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I love that stuff man and I hate to do it, but we should wrap this up because we've been going. Uh, This has been fantastic. Um, And I think that I really enjoy where our conversation has gone for this episode um, because it really sort of ties into what I love about your work. It really ties into what inspires me about illustrations in general, what inspires me about filmmaking. And it sounds like the same things inspire you, which is really great. Um, And it's just finding that tone and that confidence for that tone and then really sort of studying and understanding the tools that you have at your disposal for that medium and trying to mm. convey just enough for the audience to fill in the blanks. And and in that fill in the blank things, that's what makes your illustration so juicy to me is that I'm actually filling in the blanks. I'm like, okay, here's how the fur is going. Here's all that shit. I fucking love it. Yeah, that's great to hear. I love it. And I, thank you. And I think that... Um, it also ties in. I really firmly believe in that the, the stuff we were talking about, yeah, from from the filmmaking language point of view of of having conviction in what you want to show, and actually refining it down more more than people maybe even realize. Really set, applying rules to something and and really narrowing down that that language because even though uh, even though you might look at something that I draw and think like, oh my god, it's a crazy explosion of of, of language in there, but actually it's from my point of view, it's really not. It's actually a stripped back a ton of rules. There's so, uh, I could write a longer list of things that I don't do and things that are out of the question. And I'm like, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, like I said, I don't use perspective. I don't blend colors together. I don't use a paintbrush and I don't use all of these. There's a massive monumental pile of things that I don't use. And there's a very small, little list of things I could write in a post-it note of the tools and methods that I use. And um, I think that's the same as what we're talking about, the conviction of of certain filmmakers to be able to say, um, to, yeah, to give you a really refined, confident, well thought out um, visual language of of an idea and and, yeah, have conviction in it and not not let people direct you out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and be accepting of the of the restrictions that you off that you I need to I have to work within fucking restrictions I just have to because within those restrictions I have my parameters and I understand how the space works and I know there's a lot of artists that work uh, in the opposite way and uh, honestly I was just talking to the uh, producers of my movie that were we were talking about the creation of this creature and they were thinking more lofty and they're like you know what is the what is the mythology behind this creature? And I'm like, dude, what is the budget? How is it interacting with the people? Like, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that line of thought. That yeah, let's let, uh, and I do get that because it's kind of like the sort of uh, George R. R. Martin approach of like, well, if I'm talking about this character, I need to know what their whole family tree is and what the entire history of that family. Well, I do get that, and, and we want to know about the mythology of things, but 
looking at Alien as, as another example, or once they've started to get into explaining it and making prequels to things and showing how they've uh, writing books and books and books about mythology or something, it's like, I kind of didn't want to know where the Predator came from. I don't want to mm-hmm. know, like, the, the mystery of it is so much more powerful and compelling and you can really use that to Star Wars, you know, like did, the cool thing about Boba Fett was that we only saw him for two minutes and yeah. he was off. You know? yeah. And like, I, that was what made this like, that was why he was the coolest character because he ended up in the Sarlacc pit and we didn't, and we did <laughs> mythology that you maybe one day escaped, but I don't want to know, you know, but um, in fact, I think the point that you're at now with, in your movie making journey is that's, you're, you're at the coolest part really where you can you know even with like Ridley Scott look at when he got to making like Kingdom of Heaven where you would think you think anyone in the any movie studio would be like take the money you Ridley Scott make whatever movie you want but actually what happened was I remember going to see Kingdom of Heaven in the cinema and being like the fuck was that movie like I wasn't didn't right. just didn't make sense of it it was it seemed kind of a mess then years later I was watching film four and they re-ran it they ran it on Sunday night or something and I watched it and I was like holy shit this movie was excellent why did I why was I so down on it when I saw it first time around found out later on that the version they showed in the cinema was the studio edit version and the version they showed on TV was Ridley Scott's edit and it was like a completely different movie yeah and then it hit me at that point I was like how could that happen like how and obviously now I know like that's how the, the, the whole system works but um, yeah but business. the you're at now where you have a, a, you're working with a small crew of people and you're actually getting to sit together with a small crew, crew of people and figure these things out and, and decide what you want it to look like and it's the yeah it's the coolest place to be I think All right, there it is, today's show. And I, I, let me tell you, it couldn't have gone any better. Uh, I've always known that uh, Richie and I would get along uh, ever since the first time I saw his work and uh, saw his influences. Um, I just, I'm not blowing smoke up his ass when I say that his work really affects me. Like I really, 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 really enjoy how he sets the plate for me to come in and enjoy the meal. I really do. Um, and I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. I did. Him and I talked a bit offline. Um, I, we're gonna we're definitely keeping in touch because there's a bunch of stuff that I want his input on. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope you guys really dug it. And those of you who uh, just came over because you're a big fan of his work and you want to know more about his specific work, then definitely go to his website. Let me stall here while I reboot my computer in the background and uh, get the actual, yeah, it's just, it's just richiebeckett.com. If you go to his website, he does a good job showing you uh, a bunch of his selected works, but 
do a Google search because his selected works barely touch the surface of his stuff. And uh, the images that we talked about, uh, that Mastodon one is up there, so fucking gorgeous. I've, I didn't get a chance to bring it up to him, um, but he's got this really great Dylan Carlson image, which looks like he does by using scratchboard stuff. I don't know if you guys have ever, maybe you did an art class. You ever play around with old scratchboard stuff where you'd get a board that was completely painted with ink and then you would have like these little scraping tools and you would essentially start to draw in the highlights on an image. And I really dug it because it just felt more magical that I was like scraping away this layer to reveal what was in the darkness, what was in the blackness. Um, I fucking really dig scratchboard stuff. I have to buy some and do some on my own again. Um, but uh, his work is really gorgeous um, and it shows. And if you want to know more specifically on how he makes these pieces, I'm going to try to find a bunch of the videos. I'll, I'll get a collection of all the YouTube videos that I found of him talking specifically. I know he sits down with uh, James Hetfield from Metallica. I know he sits down with the dudes from Mastodon and they talk about how they come up and conceive with this stuff. I'll put all those together in one place at inlovewiththeprocess.com on the episode page. So we'll put all that stuff in there um, and uh, you guys will fall even more in love with his work. I just get so distracted as I'm sitting here and I'm going through it. His fucking Cthulhu Metallica fucking image. God damn it. So much detail. Isn't it ironic that the artists that have a talent, they have a skill for something, they <laughs> they always want to do the opposite when he talked about like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm too obsessed with detail and I think I want to go less detail. Lean into it, dude. Your fucking detail is the shit. That's why I love it. Anyway, hope you guys liked this episode. Uh, as promised, different guests, better people, higher profiles. He's a big get for us on the show. Um, and I want you guys to do a shout out to Liam for consistently keeping up with all the post-production because we have so many episodes in the can. So many great episodes coming at you guys. So many great guests. And uh, I'll tell you this, today's show is a big win for me. Because uh, I'm always, it's one of the benefits of this podcast is I get to finally sit down one-on-one -on -one with these people that I really respect. Um, and I'm curious to see what the future holds. Let's just say that. Anyway, that's it. I'm not going to drag this out any further. Thanks for listening. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.